Tonight on Huckabee, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Ride for Freedom battles against human trafficking. Gorby Linkert and Nora Jane Struthers perform. That's Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. Wow, we've got a great audience here, and we're so glad you're joining us. Let me tell you a little story. A father wanted his children to understand the Holocaust, and he decided to take them to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. That's the memorial to the 11 million victims of the attempt to eradicate the Jewish people. Though concerned that his 11-year-old daughter was really young to view the horrific scenes depicted in Yad Vashem, he determined that well, she could always be taken out of the experience if it became too traumatic. Now, the little girl viewed the section depicting the Warsaw Ghetto. That's where children as young as four or five were left on the streets to fend for themselves after their parents were taken on trains to the death camps. Some of those children died from freezing. Others were shot for sport by the Nazi soldiers. And that's verified because the Nazis actually took photos of themselves doing it as if they were proud to engage in such barbaric behavior. The little girl gazed at the photos from the death camps like Dachau, Bergen-Belsen, and Auschwitz-Birkenau. That was the death camp where 10,000 Jews, including women, children, and infants, were murdered in cold blood every day. And when the crematoriums couldn't handle the numbers, the Nazis took Jews by the thousands to large pits dug into the ground, and they shot them in mass, then pushed their bodies into the pit until another group could be shuttled to the site. The little girls stared at the photos of the disgusting destruction of innocent human lives, and would sometimes read the inscriptions below the photos. As she prepared to exit the Yad Vashem exhibit with her father, she paused by the guest book on a podium on the way out. She reached into her father's pocket, took out his pen, then she began to write in the guest book. She put her name, address, and then she paused when it asked for comments. The father watched over her shoulder to see if what she wrote might help him to know whether the lesson of the Holocaust had registered with his young daughter. As he watched, she wrote words that he'll never forget. She simply wrote, why didn't somebody do something? That's all she wrote. But her words were haunting. Why didn't somebody do something? It was hard for her un to understand how such despicable things could be happening to human beings and no one would speak up or stand up and try to stop it. She put the pen back into her father's pocket and she didn't speak for several hours. But he never had to ask again if she understood the lesson of the Holocaust. That little girl goes to another podium almost every day these days. It's one at the White House. That little girl was my daughter, Sarah, who is now a wife, a mother, and you know her as press secretary to the President of the United States. I just know her as the youngest of my three children and mother to three of my six grandkids, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Please welcome her. Obviously, you're not at the Red Hen restaurant in Virginia right now. Slightly different crowd that I'm used to. It's a little more uh, welcoming than the daily briefing. I've, I feel like maybe I should quit now while I've uh, still listen, got people on my side. I'm going to have a little fun with you tonight. Oh, good. <laughs> I promise I'll be a lot easier on you than Jim Acosta <laughs> from CNN. That, that much I can assure you. 
Um, <laughs> tell us what happens just before the briefing, before you walk out there, which by the way is almost always later than it's supposed to be, and you can explain that too. What's going on back there behind that, uh, behind that press stage? Well, for starters, uh, I'll apologize for my tardiness. Uh, my dad's the most punctual person I've ever encountered in my life, and he regularly lectures me about being late, despite the fact uh, that I'm 36 years old. He's still that's usually the first critique I get is that I was late again. Um, but just before I, I go out, uh, I spend about an hour and a half to two hours with my team uh, prepping, going over questions we think may ask. And then the final few minutes just before I go out, uh, I do a quick devotional uh, just to kind of give myself a couple of minutes of quiet time, uh, get my head in the right place. And then I, I usually, um, it's time to roll the dice and see what happens and go out there. What, what devotional book do you, is there a particular one that you, uh, that you found helpful? I do uh, Jesus Calling. Does the president ever call you in just before a press conference and say, now here's what I want you to make sure you say? Uh, certainly. Um, again, my job isn't to speak on behalf of myself or to talk about my own personal feelings about things, but it's uh, to go out and to give his message and try to explain his policies. Uh, as I think everybody in the country knows, and one of the reasons that he's president is because he has some pretty uh, strong opinions. You think? And he's very I happy. I haven't noticed that. He's I very happy to share those. Uh, and let me know uh, before I go out. Just this week, we found that youth unemployment is at a low over the past 52 years. So more young people are employed um, than, than in the last 52 years. I mean, those are pretty strong numbers. And, you know, how people can say he has nothing to do with it. <laughs> if he didn't, then how come it wasn't happening before he came? Yeah, I think one of the, the greatest uh, untold stories that has happened over the last year and a half is it's not just that we have a strong economy, but we have a booming economy that is 100% uh, due to the leadership and the policies that the president's put forward, whether it was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, whether it was deregulation, a focus on actually making our country energy independent. All of these things have created an environment uh, that has allowed our economy to thrive. You know, I think we've all noticed that uh, th that press room atmosphere, <laughs> let's go back there a moment, isn't always friendly. We've got you a little that clip. Too. <laughs> We've got a little clip of a moment in which uh, they were trying to get you to say something, and I want us to take a look, and then I'll get a reaction from you. Let's watch. Uh, the question that well, I when have... journalists make honest mistakes, they should own up to them. Uh, sometimes, and a lot of times, you don't. The president, the president but there's a difference. The there's a very big. I'm sorry. I'm not finished. Okay. There's a very big difference between making honest mistakes and purposefully misleading the American people, something that happens regularly. You can't say I'm not done. You cannot say you cannot say that it's an honest mistake when you're purposely putting out information that you know to be false. I love that quote. <laughs> you know, sometimes when I'm watching that press briefing, I'm not sure if you're talking to them or if you're talking to your three kids. Well, I, I, was, I was actually going to say uh, those three beautiful children that you saw earlier, I'm not biased at all, but I think they're pretty perfect. Uh, their behavior is questionable at times, which has been perfect training uh, to be the White House press secretary and to work, to work in that room. And uh, certainly, I think you see a few mom moments and the mom voice come out on occasion. Do you take that personally when they just are coming after you like that? Uh, I try not to. I think uh, my focus is to go out and do my job and do it as best I can. Um, I also have two older brothers that have helped prepare me that uh, <laughs> as a uh, young kid, and they, they were more than happy to take credit for it, too. You've had some very, very big moments that you've lived through, historic moments, the summit in Singapore regarding North Korea. You were literally at the lunch table sitting across from Kim Jong-un. You were in Helsinki with the president, the infamous meeting with Vladimir Putin. But what stands out for you as something that you feel like for the rest of your life, you're going to deeply cherish as an incredible moment where you just looked around and said, I can't believe I'm doing it. Those are moments I'll never forget. But I think the most important ones for me are the ones of bringing my kids to the White House, watching them 
run down the colonnade. Uh, everyone knows me as the White House press secretary, uh, and that's an incredible job, and it's one that I cherish and I value and I'm honored to do. But the most important job I have and the most important job that I will ever have, no matter what I do from here, is to be the mom to my three kids. And uh, it's the greatest uh, thing I could ever do, and I uh, hope I don't screw it up too much. So far, they've turned out okay. You know what? I think you are a wonderful mother. A delightful wife to your husband, Brian, and an absolutely amazing daughter. I'm proud of all my kids, and I'm proud of you to be here. But you're not finished. We're gonna, I'll put it this way. I should have known I'm not wasn't done. the hook yet. I'm not finished. <laughs> See, I'll learn. I'm not finished. Later in the show, I'm going to have you come back because you got such a great reception. We're canceling a bunch of stuff we had, <laughs> and you're going to come back, and we're going to talk some more about the personal side, so stay around. All right, Keith, you tell us what else we have coming up in the show. Well, that's going to be hard to talk, Governor. Coming up, Ride for Freedom, battles against human trafficking. And precious metals expert Kevin DeMerrick strikes gold. Then American artist Corby Linker and Nora Jane Struthers perform. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders returns. Lots more Huckabee is on the way. Welcome back, everyone. Well, tonight we have four incredible young men who have pedaled coast to coast to bring awareness to the epidemic of human and sex trafficking. It's time for our Huck's Heroes. Forty million people live in some form of slavery across the world. And four and a half million of those people are caught in sex trafficking. Any hopes and dreams that they have wither in the physical and psychological cages that they live in. Tanner, Andre, Anthony, and Justin are four men who want to raise awareness and money to help combat human and sex trafficking. They've been riding all across America to accomplish that. They're the men behind Ride for Freedom. I want you to meet tonight's Huck's Heroes. This story has got to be one of the craziest things I've ever heard. First of all, that you rode literally 3,300 miles from Oregon to New York City. You had never trained riding bikes, ever. No. The most any of you had ridden, one of you had ridden, what, 50 miles? 15 miles. 15. 15. Yeah. 15 miles. 15. And that was the most any of you have ridden. Most people to do one of these things, like if they run or do a bike thing across, they have chase vehicles, they have a whole support team. You had no one. Yeah, what's crazy is we basically went out by ourselves. Um, we stepped out. We, we wanted to make a difference, wanted to do something crazy. And um, this definitely was, but we went without a tour van. And we just said, you know what? We believe God's going to provide for us. He's going to get us there. And by the glory of God, by the grace of God, we made it to New York City. It was 55 days of the most brutal, <laughs> brutal riding you'd ever experienced. So, so painful, but by the grace of God, we made it. How many miles a day did you ride those bicycles? Um, anywhere between uh, really tough days where we're going up 2,500, 3,000 feet, we'd have to cut it down to 60 miles. Oh, just 60 uh, just miles. 60. Yeah. But there were Real slackers. Mile days, 110 <laughs> mile days. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's just hard for me to get my arms around that to do that day after day. And that you could even walk is something that I'm marveling at now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just got finished a week ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yes. You, you have now completed the ride. You did it for a reason. This wasn't just to prove how tough you were, and, mm. and you did that. Or how much faith you had. You did that to go out there with no idea. I mean, you kind of follow that biblical model. Take nothing with you. Mm -hmm. You slept in church pews. You slept when people invited you, yep. sometimes a hotel room, but you just did it. But something motivated you four guys to put yourself through that. That's what I want to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, we partner with an amazing organization called Agape International Missions, um, and they work in Cambodia, where right now there's over 200,000 victims of uh, human trafficking, um, whether it's human sex slavery or um, just slave labor. And over 15% of that is uh, children under the age of 15. And so personally for me, this is just a, a really touchy subject because um, it just almost is unfathomable to uh, imagine 200,000 people in, in, in sex slavery or just slave labor. And, um, and, and so we decided 
You know, we can make the sacrifice, not of our money, not of anything, but just our bodies. And, and that's the one thing we can sacrifice. So with God willing, we got on our bikes and we rode from the coast of Oregon to the coast of New York. And uh, we decided to set out and, and change the world to um, hopefully inspire other people to sacrifice their money and, and time to donate to Agape, donate to Ride for Freedom. And whatever they have, whether it's $5, $50, 500 um, for every $1,000 raised, it sends a SWAT team into a brothel to raise 15 or 10 to 15 women or, and or children out of human sex slavery. So it's just an amazing organization, and, uh, and we're just truly inspired by them. Well, what you've done is amazing, to not only to bring awareness, but to raise the money that you've raised through the bike ride. And I hope that even your appearance here will cause a lot of our viewers who will realize that they could be a part, not of having to ride a bike for 3,300 miles across America. These guys have already done that, but you, could step up with a check, credit card, make a big gift. To stay up to date and donate to the Ride for Freedom cause, go to rideforfreedom.co, .co. I know it's a little different, not com, rideforfreedom.co. Learn more about human and sex trafficking and the devastating effects. Get involved in this fight. You can find out more at theenditmovement.com. All of that is on your screen. Guys, thanks again for being here for showing us what you have done and the great faith that you've had. It is an honor. Thank you for Thank being you. our Hux heroes tonight. You truly Thank you. are. Thank God bless you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this pleasure. Thank you. Great honor to have you here. Thank you. With a degree in finance and experience in international banking, Kevin Demerit is the founder of Lear Capital. It is the country's leading precious metals dealer. Kevin also authored a book. It's called The Bulls, the Bears, and the Bust, which predicted the market collapse in 2002 and also predicted the rise of gold and silver. For 25 years, Kevin has been helping people protect their wealth by diversifying into precious metals. He says they're one of the few assets that can never be worth zero. Please welcome my next guest, Kevin Demerit. Well, the good news is, Kevin, we're not riding on bicycles anywhere. We just get to sit and visit for a few minutes. Is that an amazing story? That is an amazing story. I couldn't make it for 60 miles. Uh, I, you know, I, I just can't even begin to think. But, you know, there's something else a lot of people have not really thought about, and that is when they look at their long-term future, a lot of people, you know, they have CDs, they have stocks, they have uh, bonds. You say to folks that you really might want to diversify and put some money in things like silver and gold. Why? Tell us why. Well, <clears throat> after a few years in the banking industry, you start to realize just how artificial the monetary system really is. If you want a loan, you go down to the bank, they print the money, lend it to you, and then charge interest on it. It's a pretty good gig when you think about it. For them it is, yeah. That's <laughs> right. Um, then the central banks, if the smaller banks need a bailout or the economy needs a bailout, they print more money and every time they do that, the money in our pocket becomes worth just a little bit less. So the devastating effect of this is that since we took the dollar off the gold standard, the dollar has lost 90% of its purchasing power. Mm. It's a devastating effect for That's people. stunning. For savers and retired people. So a lot of people, you know, they don't understand. If they buy silver and gold, what is the value to them? How does that give them a sense of, of, of security that maybe other forms of investments won't? Great question. You know, in 2008, uh, the stock market was falling, um, the real estate market had crashed, and gold and silver hit all-time highs. And the greatest calls that we got were from people retired that said, you know, I don't want to sell my gold and silver, but my 401k turned into a 201k, <laughs> my real estate's down. This is the only thing I have to sell that has value that I can wait for the stock market or the real estate market to come back. So it's diversification. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, divide your portions seven ways or eight, because we do not know what disaster will fall, befall the land. That's what we're talking about here. Diversification and in investing can help reduce risk and increase profitability. That's, that's why I'm uh, such an advocate of the, of the precious metals market. Kevin, you looked at the marketplace back in 2002, you saw and predicted that there was going to be a collapse. Same thing happened in 2008. You, you kind of predicted that this was something we'd be prepared for. What did you see that a lot of people weren't seeing? It was, it was debt. 
You know, 2008, we had $10 trillion worth of debt. It crashed the real estate market, which then crashed the stock market. Um, today, we have $21 trillion worth of debt, and it continues to grow. But personally, I think President Trump is doing an unbelievable job trying to grow the economy so we don't have another crisis. And it is growing, and I think that's important. Uh, by the way, I want to tell you, you know, I feel like I know you. I see, you know, television commercials about Lear Capital all the time. Uh, you were the very first uh, sponsor for the Huckabee Show. We're very proud of that partnership and grateful for that. But even more so, I'm, I'm grateful that when you talk about these issues, you make it where I can understand it. Because, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert in the field of finance. If there's one message you have for the people out there, who are trying to figure out how do they protect themselves? How do they protect what they've worked so hard for? What do you say to them that they need to do? Well, investing should be very boring, actually. And you can make it boring by diversification. Um, the, the people in 2008 that had the worst experience was when the stock market fell by 50% and they had to wait six or seven years to get back to where it was. Um, by diversifying with maybe precious metals, and there's other things you can diversify with, you had something to offset and go back into the market and purchase those stocks at a much lower value. And that changes your retirement. It changes your children's funding for their education. So diversification makes investing actually fairly boring. Over a 10-year period, as long as you have something offsetting the risks of a very high stock market like we have again now, um, with maybe undervalued assets like precious metals because they're low again, that whole cycle will shift. And over a 10-year period, usually you're going to have better returns and low, lower risk. I want to ask you about silver because a lot of conversation today is about the value of silver because of its use in technology, which is something I've never thought about. I mean, I'm, what does silver have to do with technology and why is that going to be a, a commodity for the future? Well, the, uh, the silver market's very interesting. First of all, it's below its all-in production cost, meaning the mines, most mines can't pull it out of the ground for uh, the price that it trades at. And one of the big uh, demand factors behind silver right now is solar. China's expanding their solar. California in 2021, I believe it is, uh, is requiring all new homes to have solar on their roofs, and I think other uh, states are following. You can't have solar without silver. Market so technology. solar is really triggering a very big demand of the silver market, yet right now the prices are low. So, I mean, that would be kind of an encouragement to uh, look at that as a commodity. Yes, same thing happened in, you know, 2002 when we had television screens and smartphone screens. All of them used silver. That was the first part of the demand. And now you have solar, which is much bigger. So we're back to the same situation, undervalued silver um, in 2002, and we're here again in 2018, same story. Thank you very much for your partnership with our show and the confidence you have in us and our confidence in you. Uh, because, you know, it, it works both ways. You were willing to invest in us, but we are proud to partner with you because we have such confidence in what you do and in the integrity with which you do it. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure being a sponsor. Great Thank to you. be with you, Kevin. You bet. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, if you want to learn more about Lear Capital, how you can invest in things like gold and silver, you can visit leargold.com. That's leargold.com. Keith, I'm sure you've got a pocket full of gold and silver over there right now. Boy, Why don't you tell our folks the value of just sticking around through the break? Oh, we've got nothing but gold, Mike. Nashville artist Corby Linker and Nora James Struthers perform. Then news headlines you may have missed. And more Sarah Huckabee Sanders coming up in 60 seconds. I want to heartily encourage you to join Hillsdale College for their free online course on our Constitution. A lot of people don't know much about the Constitution. This course will revolutionize your thinking on our nation today. Boy, do people ever need this study. If you'll visit Hillsdale College to register today for their free course on the Constitution, it could change your life, it could change America. Now, Americana music artists Corby Linker and Nora Jane Struthers actually put that sentiment to song around a dinner table. I want you to take a listen to the two of them, delightful people, and they're performing along with Nora's talented husband, Joe Overton, on their song, Let's Just Have Supper.
mom's on the phone. TV's making all of us feel angry and alone. Talking makes us yell, yelling makes us sad. Coming home used to feel right, now it just feels and Nora Jane, and let's just have supper. I love this song. So let's talk about the music, though, that you guys are creating. Bluegrass, it's, it's such a pure part of America. But what is passionate in your lives that make you want to perform and write and, and get music out to people? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's, I think that for both of us, probably there was a time in early in our lives when we had a really positive experience with music. Yeah. And for me, you know, it kind of was something that came naturally to me. And I just really, it was a joy. So when you find something that brings you a lot of joy, you want to keep doing that thing. And then when you get to share it with other people and give them joy too, I mean, why wouldn't you? No, I get it. And you know, one of the things I've found is that when everything else divides people, and we're living in a very polarized, divisive world, the one thing that can bring people from every part of our spectrum together is music. And music is a unifying and a powerful tool to bring people together. And that's why I love this song and I love what you're doing with it. I hope it turns out that it gets a lot of radio play and people start listening to it because there's a message behind it and maybe there's a lot of people across America that ought to put some cornbread in the oven, chicken on the stove, have supper, and forget about all the things they disagree with, and maybe talk about music and life and things that are good and valuable. I think it's important to find things that we have in common. You know, mm -hmm. we tend to focus on things that keep us apart and define us. Um, but there's a lot that we have in common, and I, that is what this song is about. Absolutely. Well, it's a beautiful song. You guys do it brilliantly, and I want to thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having and, us. And uh, hopefully one of these days, we'll just have some supper. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Thank you. Sounds good. Corby and Nora Jane, thank you guys.
And I want to encourage you to check out both of these wonderful performers. You can find out more about Nora Jane Struthers and The Party Line, that's her band. The album that she has is called Champion. And you can also find out where you can see them perform. Just visit norajanestruthers.com. And if you want to get a copy of Corby Linker's latest album or his book of short stories, it's called Medium Hero. Not to mention, you can catch him on tour. Just visit corbylinker.com. It's right there on your screen. Coming up next, news you won't believe on In Case You Missed It. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders returns. Well, from politics to specialty cakes and 16 consecutive years of listening to opera, this is one of my favorite segments on this show, the news that might have slipped by you. Now, you know, later in this uh, segment, my daughter is back, We're gonna be talking to her. She doesn't just watch the news, she gets to make it. But sometimes there's news that even she misses. And that's why we call this In Case You Missed It. From our This Really Takes the Cake file, Jack Phillips, a Colorado baker, is in trouble for his craft yet again. After winning a ruling at the Supreme Court that partially upheld his right to refuse to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, Jack is now having to sue the state of Colorado because they're trying to force him to bake a cake to celebrate gender transition where a biological female identifies as male or vice versa. Now, that's a horse of a different color. I'm speaking of the lawsuit, not the person who wants the cake. <laughs> Mr. Phillips claims the state of Colorado is on a crusade to crush him and to pressure him into mediation over his refusal to bake the gender transition cake because of his religious beliefs. Autumn Scardina, who filed a Colorado complaint against Jack Phillips, states that he refused her request for a gender transition cake back in 2017. She's represented by her brother, Todd Scardina, whose legal services website states this, and I quote, we take great pride in taking on employers who discriminate against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and serving them their just desserts, end quote. Phillips' counter lawsuit cites, his belief that the status of being male or female is given by God. It's biologically determined, not determined by perceptions or feelings, and cannot be chosen or changed. Phillips is represented in the case by the Alliance Defending Freedom. Let's pray that Jack Phillips is allowed to practice his faith and his cake artistry without being a target for destruction. Because if not, what's next? Forcing a kosher deli to serve break-and-wrapped shrimp? Or maybe... A vegan who owns a vegan restaurant is going to be required to serve ribeye steaks? That'd be my kind of vegan restaurant, honestly. <laughs> oh, well, Twitter has followed Facebook by blocking a campaign ad for a Republican congressional candidate in California. She's a female and from Cambodia. She shares the terrible story of the Pol Pot regime and his killing of countless people. But how this miracle happened with her father and her mother. In Cambodia, under Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, being young and single often meant a gruesome life and likely death. They approached my father, and in order to save his life, he said he was about to be married. They asked him, to whom? He pointed to the prettiest girl that he saw, having never spoken to her before. The soldiers approached her, and she said yes. They got married the very next day. 41 years later, they're still the happiest couple I know. Great things can come from great adversity. That's one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. It's beautiful. Now, Facebook eventually admitted the video was not, quote, shocking, disrespectful, or sensational, unquote. Twitter believes great things can come from adversity, except when they are the adverse ones. Twitter describes Mrs. Hing's ad as obscene. Think about that. Hing's campaign contacted Twitter to be sure the censoring of the ad was not an error. Twitter's response, sending the same message to her with obscene in bold. 
Friends, social media companies have been intentionally targeting and shutting down a lot of conservative people on their services. That is a fact that I've experienced myself. But let me say that if elected, Elizabeth Hang promises to correct bias censorship in social media services. She plans to work for legal internet transparency so that every American has a chance to be heard. And let me tell you, Facebook and Twitter, there ain't no censoring a federal fairness law. I hope you know that. Finally, from our fine arts file, we've all had those neighbors who wouldn't stop their dog from barking. Well, one woman in Slovakia decided that she would fight fire with opera. <laughs> the disgruntled lady, identified only as Eva, began to crank up Verdi's La Triviata to drown out the incessant barking of the neighbor's dog. But that was in 2002, 16 years ago. Oh, did I mention that she doesn't play the entire opera, only a four-minute aria sung by Placido Domingo from sunrise to sunset as loud as she can? She's done it for over 5,500 days. <laughs> a Hungarian news site recently reported that Eva was arrested in her hometown of Stervo on charges of harassment and malicious persecution. I love Placido Domingo, one neighbor told Hungarian news site index.hu. But not like this, another resident declared, the whole street is suffering. The neighbor's dog allegedly said, quote, the opera ain't over until the fat lady sings. And she's now singing like a mockingbird. Now, I might just raise a couple of questions. One, would you wait 16 years to call the cops? Those are some tolerant people. Here's the second one. Why didn't Eva just report the disturbance of the neighbor's dog? And third, what kind of dog did the neighbor have that outlived 16 years of opera? <laughs> so with respect to Eva, I'll bet she's really a cat person. Well, Eva has been remanded in custody and according to local media, could face up to three years in jail if convicted. And by the way, La Traviata translates to the fallen woman. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed the fact that we read the news so you don't have to. And those are stories that I bet my daughter didn't even cover at the White House press briefing. Please welcome back Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Maybe those are stories you should cover. And those weren't fake news either. Does it hurt your feelings sometimes when people say really nasty things? Like what happened at the White House Correspondence Center. Was that, you sat right there. I was frankly amazed you didn't just get up and walk off. Uh, certainly there are moments uh, that you would like to pretend like they didn't happen. Uh, but at the same time, I also feel like those are the moments that make you a little bit stronger and put you in a better place for the next day. So uh, while I'd be happy to never have lived through a lot of those, uh, I'm still here, still fighting, and uh, gonna continue pushing back and doing my job. One thing that I know very well. I like this crowd a lot better than my day job. <laughs> you might want to take them all to the White House and put them in the press briefing room. I think they would uh, I think it certainly might go be more a fun. E a little easier for me. <laughs> but you grew up in a very political family, obviously. So from the time you're a little tot, you're dealing in politics. A lot of kids reject what their parents do. Reject especially because it's a, it's a tough business. It's harsh. You saw that as a kid. What kept you from becoming bitter and rejecting involvement in politics? Uh, I mean, I'm not just sucking up because you're sitting here and asking the questions, but uh, it doesn't hurt either. Uh, in, in no, it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> hurt a bit. <laughs> it, certainly in large part um, watching you and my mom uh, go through this process and the spirit that you guys approached every day with and we got to see that and see the results of pushing through is certainly much better than cowering down. To be able to be on the front row uh, to history and to actually get to play a part in it and to feel like you're impacting change and impacting it for the greater good is certainly something that outweighs uh, some of the worst days and some of the bad hits and some of the attacks. I have seen, it's not even something you told me about. You never even mentioned it, but I've seen pictures uh, on the interweb, I've seen them there, uh, of you with the president at Walter Reed talking with 
wounded warriors. Are those the days that kind of get you centered? Uh, certainly, the, the moments where you get to see uh, the greatest parts of America. There's a guy named John, he is a, uh, he's a double arm amputee, but he's also had double arm transplant. He's only the second person ever in the military to have double arm transplants. And I got the chance to meet him at Walter Reed and his incredible wife and to see his resilience. Uh, the stuff I go through is nothing compared to what he has done and the sacrifices that he has made. And that certainly gives you the energy and the strength to do uh, the little part that you can play and to continue to, to fight and try to do uh, what you think is best for our country. You have a tough job of trying to balance, <laughs> trying to balance this job that is basically you're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, family, husband, three, Beautiful, beautiful children. He's not biased that. either. <laughs> yes, I am. And I'll tell everybody I am. How do you balance all that? How, how, do, how does it work for you? Uh, certainly, I have the most incredible partner in the world, my husband, Brian. Um, he's a polar opposite of me, which is very good. He's very laid back. He's very patient. Um, and without him, I couldn't do any of this. And having that support system of, of family, faith, and friends is the only way that you can get through every day. We have an incredible team at the White House that I get to work with every day. And they are some of the smartest, best, most talented people you could possibly find. But more important than that, uh, they're just good people that want to do really good things. And getting to work with that group every single day is a, is a real honor, getting to work for the president. But he loves our country, and the rest of us do too, and, and that makes it all worthwhile. Before you go, I want to uh, give you a little gift, a little uh, mug that uh, I hope you'll enjoy, maybe something you can take to the White House. <laughs> And uh, I'll even pour you a cup of tea so that you'll be able to enjoy it. And uh, we'll make sure that you can take this with you. I think you will enjoy uh, this fantastic little gift that we have just for you tonight. All right. It's a magic cup. And you put hot coffee or tea in it. <laughs> so you can take this to the president right. and tell him we enjoy it. Sarah, you. God bless Thank you. Thank you so much. Tell us what we've got. Oh, follow that. Standing ovation. Next best-selling author, Anthony DeStefano, takes on an angry atheist with wit and wisdom. And Trey Corley of the Music City Connection perform right here on Huckabee. You know, my next guest from his best-selling Christian books such as A Travel Guide to Heaven and Angels All Around Us. His latest is a sharp rebuke to rising attacks on people of faith. Please welcome the author of Inside the Atheist Mind, Anthony DeStefano. Anthony, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank I'm you. I'm very honored to be here. You know, you've done some incredible books and they've been bestsellers. This one may be the most important message you've had because atheism is growing yes. faster than faith. What's going on? Look, atheism is an epidemic today. The number of professed atheists in this country is up to about 10%. The number of the religiously unaffiliated, those are people who say they don't believe in anything, is about 25%, a quarter of the population, and the numbers are higher in Europe. But the group that's really troubling is a group that we don't even have the number for. These are the functional atheists, the practical atheists. Those are the people who say that they're Christian. They say that they're Jewish. They even say that they're Muslim, but they're really not. Uh, they don't hold to the tenets or doctrines of those, of, of those religions. They don't let their professed belief in God affect their behavior. You know, for all intents and purposes, these folks are secular humanists. Well, well give me some examples of people who say, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm Jewish, but they might as well be atheists. Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Cuomo. And, okay, and, these folks. And, and that's not a political statement, but it's because they are members of a church, but they defy the church's fundamental doctrine on critical issues. Would, would that be a fair, because I, I don't want to attack them on a political basis, but you're saying that if you say and embrace a faith, but you absolutely then run from its practices, what's, what's the point? What's the difference? If you, it, what, what's the difference between an atheist and someone who, who says that they're a Christian, but then acts as an atheist, a secular humanist? And the problem is that these folks today 
control the levers of, 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 of power in this country. And by that, I mean they control the means of communication. They control, as you well know and as your daughter knows, 85% yeah. of the mass media. They control the academic world. They control Hollywood. They control the movie industry. Right, they're all around us. And the real problem is, and this is what your daughter really understands, is that these folks don't really believe in free speech the way that you do. Yeah. Sure, they say they believe in free speech, but they give it lip service. They don't believe that free speech is an inalienable right from God because they don't believe in God, you know? So they, they believe these are uh, sort of gifts of the government, and if the government gives them, the government can take them, the government can regulate them. Our founders didn't believe that. They That's did not believe that, uh, that the government could just turn the dial on our ability to speak. If the government gives you the rights, then the government can repress those rights. And that's what we've seen for the last 50 years. We've seen uh, this effort, this relentless drive on the part of secular humanists and practical atheists, most of whom are on the left, to try to purge the society of any uh, any vestiges of Christianity. This is what's behind, you know, the cultural cleansing uh, on the college campuses. There's no free speech in the college campuses. Uh, this is what's behind fake news. This is, this is why your daughter has this, you know, the second or maybe even the first <laughs> hardest job in the country. Because she's just not giving press conferences and disseminating the news of the administration. Every single day she's battling against people who don't believe in free speech. She's really battling against, practically speaking, atheists. You know, it's fascinating. You mentioned a moment ago, and I think it was very stunning, when you talked about the, the influence of Hollywood and the academics, because the influence of the media and the influence of universities and the education system, that is particularly shaping the yes. next generation. So what do you look out the, on the horizon and see should we be really worried about the coming generations in terms of atheism? We should because that's a massive propaganda machine that you just described. And they are uh, polluting the minds of our youth. The, what people don't understand is that uh, uh, atheism is not harmless. It's very dangerous. Uh, whenever atheists come to power, Okay, you see two things. You see a repression of rights, especially free speech. And most of all, you see death, a lot of death. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, atheists don't believe in God, so they don't believe in any transcendent moral imperative against killing. Sure, they can believe that murder is wrong for practical reasons, but they don't believe in any commandment, transcendent existential commandment against killing. Also, they don't believe that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, and so therefore we don't have infinite value, infinite dignity. So we're just animals with uh, monkeys with bigger brains. You put those two beliefs together, you know, there's no transcendent rule against killing, and human beings, there's nothing special about us, and that is a deadly recipe to kill anyone who gets in your way. And that's exactly what we've seen uh, over the last 120 years. The atheist totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, and you mentioned some of them in the early part of the program. Yeah. Uh, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler, and yes, Hitler was an atheist. They uh, murdered 150 million people in the last century. 150 million people. There's a profound and frightening connection between atheism and death. And, and it doesn't stop with those totalitarian leaders. You know, as we've seen this rise in functional atheism, we've also seen this corresponding rise today in this horrifying culture of death that we find ourselves immersed in. Well, I think that's why your book is not just a book, it's a message, and it's a message Americans need to uh, begin to immerse in and understand what's happening to our culture. It's a spiritual issue. You've made that very clear in the book, Inside the Atheist Mind. It is a, a delight to have you here, and I hope people will get the book. Inside the Atheist Mind, you're going to find more at his website, along with links to purchase the book and all the rest of his terrific books, including he's got a new children's book called The Miracle of the Bread, the Fish, and the Boy. That's at anthonydestofano.com. Keith, I know we're not quite finished. We've got more coming. Tell us about it. We are not. Coming up, we remember the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin on Huckabee. This week, we lost one of the greatest voices in modern American music, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. She was the daughter of Reverend C.L. Franklin, who was a great pastor and singer. Aretha released her first album when she was just 14 years old. She went on to chart nearly 50 top hits and earned 18 Grammys in return. We join in offering condolences to her family and all her many fans. And we rejoice that she's now singing Precious Lord once again, alongside her mother and her father. 
Now here's one of my favorite bands performing Man for Life. <laughs> 